Welcome to the Liquid Soapbox Podcast. This is a show where we talk about topics that we're passionate about, giving us an opportunity to get up on our soapbox with the help of a little bit of liquid fuel. Welcome to the Liquid Soapbox Podcast. I'm Dominic Battistella. I'm your host, and I have my co-host with me, Clint Webb. What's happening? What's happening? We're here in the studio today with Dolores D. Todd. Appreciate you being here today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. If you guys don't know, D is one of the trailblazers in athletics, college athletics, women's college sports. She's done many things with the development of officiating, with the development of women's athletic programs in general. We can talk about all of those things, but one of the things that I really want to focus on when it comes to the athletics, D, is the impact Title IX of the Educational Amendments Act in 1972 had on women's athletics because prior to that, there there was no equity or even attempt in equity in athletics when it, in college athletics when it comes to gender. So, can you tell me some of how that impacted you in your career and your life? First of all, thank you very much for having me. Title IX was passed in 1972, and what it says is that any institution that gets any federal funding has to have equal opportunities for both genders, particularly women, and. It also is a takeoff from a Title VI, and Title VI actually dealt with dealing with minorities, but no one ever pretty much paid it any attention. Same kind of went for Title IX. Title IX was passed in 1972, but a lot of attention wasn't given to it. My first job in 1972, I coached gymnastics, volleyball, no, gymnastics, basketball, field hockey, which I knew absolutely nothing about. And I had cheerleaders. I had everything. But we had, the funny thing is we had one uniform. And the uniform was a kilt, like a field hockey kilt. So the basketball, I have pictures of this. The basketball players wore a kilt. The only thing to change was the blouse. You might have had girls basketball or gymnastics or whatever, but everybody had a kilt. So not only was the coaching and the training not professionalized in that time, is one coach for all of it and one uniform for all of it. Exactly. And this is 1972. 72. And we had two female, but if you taught physical education, you were expected to coach. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like a teacher in the building decides, I'd like to coach something because I've had experience there because you really didn't have that. So that was the first, and then I moved to Illinois, and uh, Illinois was always a little bit more advanced than uh, a lot of states that I understood, because one thing, we required physical education for four years in Illinois, and when you do that, you're able to to really get a look at, at people for four years, so it's not like you take a year and then they're gone and you got to figure out how to people. I really saw it begin to take off a little bit when I moved to Illinois. Now, I can't tell you things that I saw because I don't really, I don't know any different. And if this is just the way things were, if we needed something, we got it. We raised money. I didn't see a gender thing. It was just that they were adding girls sports. And I was hired at one school to do track and field. And they decided they wanted to add cross-country. Well, I didn't know anything about cross-country. But I had kids come out for cross-country. I'm like, why are you out here? And they said, because you're coaching. I said, if I coach basket weaving, you're going to come out for that too. (laughs) So they laughed. But I went through the high school thing, not really as aware of Title IX. So my understanding, Title IX, and and I could be totally wrong, it it has a lot more impact when it comes to the college athletics. So you became... you became the head coach of the track and field program at Northwestern University in 1981. Was there at that point even a concerted effort to start trying to equalize the funding for men's and women's scholarships in college athletics? No, not that I know of. This is what you have and you just dealt with it. Title IX was not really 
looked at until I was at the ACC office. Okay. And they decided that the nation decided that we need to look at this, and they formed a committee. And the committee had about 20 people on it to define what the parameters were for Title IX. Okay. And in that, they said, how do we make schools accountable? How do we deal with, are they dealing with Title IX correctly? And so there was a committee that kind of came up with all of these guidelines. And the gist of it was that you would be evaluated on three things. What is it? Uh, school, I'm drawing a blank here. You would be evaluated on number one, let's, I'm drawing a blank, but let's say you have uh, 50% males and 50% females. 50% of your opportunities within a 5% Average should go to the females. Okay. Proportionality. That's proportionality. what I got. So proportionality was the first prog. The second one was uh, history. Do you have a history of adding sports as females come to you and say, we want to have, we want to go from a club volleyball level to varsity level and interest. Do you have girls that are interested in the sport that you haven't addressed? So those were the three prongs that they used to evaluate each school on Title IX. Now, obviously, the proportionality one got all of the the looks because females were at schools at a larger population than the males. And I'm going to take a school, for example, that you're all familiar with. Let's say North Carolina had, at the time we started looking at it, 55% of their student-athletes were uh, no fifty five percent of their enrollment was women, so that meant that at least fifty percent of your athletic opportunities should go to, to go women. To women yeah. Now to Carolinas, they did a great job, but the problem with the proportionality is that football was yeah. included in the numbers for men. So yeah, if sure. you're going to deal with how many men you have participating in the sport, and then how many women you have participating in the sport, that man's, the men's sport was going to win out because you have football. Yeah, you have right. 90 guys playing football. So yeah, you, yeah. you already are 85 people in the hole mm-hmm. with women. And so you had to think of, you had to add more women's sports to come up with the numbers to match your proportionality within the institution. And that's where the problem became. I went, I was involved with the USOC. I went to Washington, actually to the Capitol, and I met with John McCain mm-hmm. and Ted Stevens on the Amateur Sports Act. And we talked a lot about how this thing was all going to take place. What happened was because of football, and nobody's dropping football. Okay, so they started looking at the other sports that they could either do away with or make their scholarships different. Mm -hmm. So the sports that got hit the hardest was track and field, wrestling, swimming. Yeah, those have a tendency to have numbers. And those were the sports that got hit hardest. Wrestling got really hit hard. And with this pandemic, swimming and track and field has been hit very hard. That's Dom's specialty, I mean, Clemson just dropped their men's track program. And they were one of the better schools in the country in track, and beautiful track. It's all about the the equity. But see, people wanted to always say, you got this many men's sports, you need this many women's sports. But the equity component not just dealt with numbers, but it also dealt with how you travel, your locker room. All of the things should have been equitable. So schools were going around trying to redo locker rooms, making sure the women travel the same. If you're going to the same destination, if the men are flying, you shouldn't be bussing. So it was a whole lot of little things in there that people didn't look at. It ended up being very costly. Or just giving the women's programs more opportunities to travel. If the men's, whatever, tennis team is traveling across the country, then the women's team should, shouldn't just be traveling within the state. Right. Yeah, the thing about it in college is that most of the time your conference sets your sure you have a conference mm-hmm. schedule, and then you can go out and pretty much non-conference get games uh, and... the other non-conference matches or whatever you want to do. That's pretty much up to the coach. Sure. But if a man wants to go, 
to play a school in California and a woman does too, then you got to let them both go. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So course. And there was something that she said in an interview. I forgot where I read it saying about how these tournaments, the men would get presents, money, whatever, and the women would get T-shirts. When I first started doing the ACC tournament, we were in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And I went down for a site inspection and I'm like, you got to be kidding me. This is where the women play? And they, they did everything they could. But they, the ACC was one of the first conferences to have a women's basketball tournament. And Fayetteville took it over. And it just was a dump. It's, it, it, that just seems like a random site considering there is no literally AT, no ACC, ACC team in yeah. Fayetteville. It, 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 they were willing to, to take the women on. Okay. And they had they did everything they can, but the place was a dump. They used to have police escorts that would bring the buses in town. They hmm. did those little things to make the women feel important. Sure. And so I got down. I made them paint the locker rooms. I bought in palm trees, <laughs> fake palm trees, and whatever I could to decorate. Again, I'm new to all of this. And then all of a sudden, we have the gifts. The women got keychains and a T-shirt. I didn't know any different. Until the next week, I went to the men's tournament, and they were getting televisions and radios mm. and this went on for a few years and i said well, we got to do better we definitely have to do better than this and so i went to the conference and proposed that even though the site that the men was having their tournament there a local organizing committee got the gifts and the women they they didn't have that kind of money yeah. so i asked that the conference do the gifts for the women that would match whatever whatever the price was. I want to say it's three hundred dollars. I think you said three hundred bucks. Yeah. Yeah, and then later on, Fred and I decided that we would do the same gift, and so that's how that took off. But there was a young lady that went to Maryland who came to me at Fayetteville one time, and she said, "Why don't you introduce all the former players that are here?" Yeah. And so at at halftime of the semifinals. I would ask all former players, come line up, and we'd line up according to school, and I'd have the name, and then we would call them out one by one, and it started to grow. They still do, don't they? Yeah, yeah. And, and it became the legends. Yeah. Yeah. It became the Got ACC it. legends. Yeah. And so we started that just, mm-hmm. and, and, and I would go out and get a trinket or whatever sure. I could to give them something. Yeah. Uh, I was always thinking of something I could give you, a yeah. little plaque or whatever. taking their time. Mm-hmm. And... That's kind of how it started, and, mm. and I forget about that. that mm-hmm. we actually. Started. I just thought that was interesting when I read that about you. I do have something that I want to add, if it's okay, Dom, real quick. Yeah. You said that Title IX was introduced in or passed in 1972, mm-hmm. and you also then said it didn't really get a good looking at until you were in the ACC offices. So for people that don't know, Ms. Ms. Dita was the assistant athletic, the assistant commissioner of the Atlantic Coast Conference from 1988 to 2005. So we're talking a 16 year gap before and it seriously that happened gets looked at. about 1992. Yeah. I, I don't think. So this is a so 20 year gap. Being, really. being political, it does not surprise me at all that there was such a long gap. But man, how frustrating was that? And how, like, how did you overcome that fr- in between 72 to when people, I'm sure, did not take it very seriously to when you entered the ACC offices? I, I guess the fact that you really didn't know any different. Okay. You know, it's like you don't know it's something. Just life. But I didn't get exposed to what the men were doing until I went to the ACC because I was just doing uh, women's track and field and women's sports. And so I didn't know any different. But when I went to the ACC, not I didn't do just women. I did all of the non-revenue sports, mm-hmm. which was ended up being 23. I started eight of them, men and women. And that's when I started to see the inequity, particularly with the women's basketball. And because I worked the next week, I always made sure the band was there and the mascots was there. I got to see what the men were doing. I'm like, wait a minute, this is not right. So that's when I really saw the inequities. So when you start to come together with the organization, with the ACC, with some of the other conferences, and start to figure out how to apply 
the Title IX provisions to college athletics, you start to see some blowback. What was it that you saw, and how did you and and the ACC deal with the reaction when you started to apply some equity, some proportionality to athletics based upon sex and gender? I think that each conference dealt with it a little bit differently. I think the ACC really did a good job of trying to make sure that things were equitable. I handled all of the championships. And so that meant that I gave schools a budget. They would submit what they thought they needed, and then I would get that approved, and then we would send them the check to operate the championships. We were equitable in terms of we reimbursed the schools for their travel party to come to the championships for going and coming, uh, a certain amount of money per athlete for housing, a certain amount for meals, the whole thing that they would submit to me after the championship was over. So all of that was equitable. Each sport was equitable in its own. For example, I had men's soccer and women's soccer, okay? Those sports tended to be, you go do the same thing. Right. So the inequities was really with women's basketball and men's basketball. Okay. And those are the things that, that I fought for the women. And again, basketball wasn't my sport, but I was charged with building this program. And I, I have this thing, I listen to people. If somebody comes up and say, what? Have you ever thought about this or that? I'm going to take it and run with it and try to make it work. So I can't take responsibility for all of the ideas because somebody along the way made a suggested something and I just made something out of it. But the inequities were more in basketball. But now I see it's just very equitable. Now, the money is not going to ever be the same. The money is not going to ever be the same. So the schools had to make, and conferences had to make a commitment that they were going to do the right thing. And they did. And they did. But there were only, when I was on the NCAA championship committee, when they divided up into divisions, there were only six sports that actually generated money. And not one of them was a woman's sport. How how different is that now? I don't know, but I think it's probably close to the same. When I say generator, it was men's basketball pays for all 83 NCAA sports. Right. And that's why when they didn't have it last year, that's why schools are hurting so much now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because they didn't get that money from the men's basketball championship. That's that's billions of dollars in TV revenue right there. Billions. That hurt. So it was men's basketball, baseball, men's soccer, men's... Ice hockey, really? Uh, wrestling. Well, it's huge in the Northeast. Yeah, and yeah. it was one other. Football it has to be football. One double A football. Oh, I called it. You know, the O. It was the F C S. Yes, yes. We used to call it one double A. Yes, they were the six ones. They actually generated money. Wow. There was not one women's sport. Wow, that's pretty. Not even women's basketball now. Now they now they might now, but I'm saying when I first. Went on the committee, sure. there was not one sure. women's sport that generated money. Because wow. when you think about generating, you're going to make something off of this. Mm-hmm. But pretty much everything was maybe evened out. The tickets aren't as much. Well, you got to be on TV. Right. That's the other thing. Yeah. I really worked hard to get the women's basketball on TV. Yeah. Sure. Uh, in and the they got the, con- you got the contracts with the, the well, you got Raycom, you got contracts mm-hmm. with ESPN. Yeah. It didn't even go there. I didn't even. We didn't even start off like that. Okay. We started off, I will never forget this. We were sitting in a room, and with this television network that did a lot of ACC stuff, we were trying to get women's basketball on. Well, women's basketball, they would give us a couple of take-delay games. (laughs) And we were fighting for live games. Yes. And so... We were sitting in the room, and a comment was made that, you know, we don't want to pay to see a bunch of girls right up and down the floor. It wasn't a very complimentary comment. And so we decided that give us one game. They said, we'll give you one game that will go live, and it's going to be the conference championship. And this is a great story. Conference championship, we were at Rock Hill, Winthrop Coliseum. We were South at Rock Carolina. Hill. 
We had the Dawn Staley's. What is the girl's name? Let's say it, great athletes. Tammy Reese, uh, Andrea Stenson. They yeah. was they, they had some players. Some girls at Maryland, Vicky Bullitt. So we had some great players. So they had promised that our we would have one game on TV live. It was a Monday night. We had to have our championship game on a Monday night, and we were going to go live. I'm going to say seven o'clock. What year was this, D? Oh. It's Dawn Staley's early 90s. So we're playing, and it was NC, it was Virginia. I think it was Virginia and NC State, or it was Virginia and Maryland. I know Virginia was in it. And we were supposed to be followed by the Colonial Men's Championship game. Our game went into triple overtime. Mm. And you couldn't leave that game. No. Um, because it was like hot. Every time I go to get the awards stand out, you know, <laughs> this happened three times. It was so exciting. Mm-hmm. That's when they realized that women's basketball was a great game to watch. Yeah. And that's when we started getting a few more live games. Now they got a bunch of games. Oh yeah. And yeah. and but we had to start somewhere, and they were not, and ha- they weren't happy of giving us live games. Okay. But that game, and I tell Dawn all the time, I said, "You changed the way people looked at women's basketball." So she was at Virginia from '88 to '92, and then she played USA basketball from '94. Okay, '88 so to '92. So I want to think this might have been probably towards '92, right? And so then the very next year after Dawn Staley stamps her impression on the women's game, you have Charlotte Smith, who then comes up with one of the most iconic mm-hmm. shots, not well, only in mm-hmm. North Carolina women's basketball in the history, world. but in well, women's basketball history. That game was at Richmond. We right. were in Richmond, Louisiana and Tech. Right. The ACC had never won a national championship on the women in women's basketball. So we were all excited. They talked to me. Well, what does it mean to the ACC that? So we were excited. So they're playing Louisiana Tech. And I'm standing there with KL and Chris Weller and a bunch of coaches. We were all sitting together. And I remember that look on Leon Barmore's face. He always looked like he was mad at everybody. But anyway. And that was the coach for Louisiana Tech? Huh? Was that the coach for Louisiana uh-huh. Tech? That's what he I'm always saying. looked like he was mad. Yeah. <laughs> He's like frowning all the Old time. Old curmudgeon, right? Yeah. yeah. They called timeout, and it was like some, what, point zero some seconds? Point zero, point zero seven. Point zero seven. Sylvia called timeout, drew up this play. I forget the girl that Jeez. inbound the ball. She was a redhead girl, and she moved along the baseline before she inbound the ball, looked over, saw Charlotte, Passed the ball to Charlotte. Charlotte looked down at the line, mm-hmm. stepped sure. back behind the line, and let it rip. And when that ball went in, we just, it, 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 we were screaming. I felt like a little child. Yeah. Uh, that was a great day. That, that was, was a great, a great game. Yeah. I want to, we talked a little bit about the, the Title IX and how that has grown women's sports. But I want to uh, step a little bit more into the now intersectionality of sports and politics, which we've seen growing in recent years. You had a few years ago the whole I, I don't think it's a controversy but i think a lot of people thought it was controversial with colin kaepernick kneeling for the national right. anthem sure. and then you, you had more and more of that this year with the reaction across sports to the george floyd killing and the protests surrounding that and how brianna taylor uh, yeah brianna taylor black lives matter movie yeah exactly yeah. and how you, you had the NBA and the WNBA and then Major League Baseball and you even had analog soccer and hockey and all recognizing that and becoming involved in using their voices and their platforms that are afforded to them because they are professional athletes to let people know what's important to them. How do you, as somebody who's been at the, a first in many as an African-American woman in athletics, how do you view what's going on right now as athletes are becoming more vocal about making social change? I'm an old girl. <laughs> and I... You're only 18. <laughs> yours, I am 18. And I'm sticking by that. But I'm really proud of these of the athletes. I'm Same. proud that they have the, the guts to stand up for what they believe in because... 
this stuff has been going on forever and ever. Sure, sure. And Hell we have yeah. avenue yeah. that we can stand up for social change and social justice. And if you want to take a knee because you don't believe that the the song, the national anthem includes you, so be it. We're so, as a society, we can be so judgmental. If it doesn't follow what we believe, then we're going to make it wrong. The, the Black Lives Matter, all lives matter. Yes. Okay, but people of color have had things happen to them that nobody else could understand until they walk a day in their shoes. Are, are You're familiar with Jay Williams, right? Basketball player for yeah, Duke. Uh-huh. So he, he's a commentator now uh-huh, and an uh-huh. analyst for ESPN. He said something that I don't, it, it hit me it's a few months back in an interview. He said, Yes, all lives matter, but all lives matter can't matter. All lives can't matter until black lives matter. And I don't know why that hit me, because in the, the way that I grew up, I didn't have these issues, of course. But uh, most of my friends were African-American when I was growing up, and I never saw that in their lives either. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's just because... I wasn't programmed to see it, but I've had a conversation with a lot of my with a lot of my African American friends about this, and they all feel the same way that you were just saying. They're proud that they're using that they're using the platform that they have. And man, are, are, do you know who Emmanuel Ocho is? Who Emmanuel Ocho? He's a I, former I, football player for yeah. Texas, and he was an NFL player, and now he has a book come, that has come out. I don't know if you're familiar with this. But it's called Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. And he said something. I was listening to a podcast today that he was on. And he said something. He has a quote that I think is very interesting. And it plays in well to what Dom was just talking about here. He says, it wasn't enough to outlaw segregation. We should have mandated integration. And I think that could be, that's obviously big in sports right now. So what are your thoughts there? Oh, that's a heavy comment. And I don't think that anybody could understand what it's like to walk in the shoes of another man. And I think that these players are seeing things from how things really are. I I, I don't know if it was you I was having a discussion with, but someone the other day, if you are a person of color, you walk in the door, the first thing they see is that you are a person of color. And then you have to prove that you belong there, that you are just as good as anybody else. But a, a, a white person can walk in the room. You just walk in the room. And in a it's, funny it's, story, it's I remember... Like being, it's, it's like the default setting, yeah. right? And, and mm-hmm, to yeah. me, people talk about privilege out there. Mm-hmm. I think that's ultimately really what it is that, like... The, for whatever reason, white male is set as the default and everything else has to be has to be viewed through that prism. And that's what it means to have that privilege. And if you're not that, then there's some inherent disadvantage of not being categorized as the default. Like you're saying, you walk in as an African-American person and that's immediately or as a person of color. And that's immediately something that Mm -hmm. people have to process and then get beyond yeah you got to go in and prove yes that yeah, you be- yeah. i want to tell you a story that to this day it still traumatizes me sure. i haven't had too many things happen but there was an athletic director that when i was first hired in the acc asked corrigan he said he said how good can she be Ooh. she wears more than one ring on each hand. Wow, wow, wow. And she wears big earrings. What does that have to do with you being yeah, really? on athletic department? That's what he said. <laughs> wow. And Corrigan, of course, told me. And, of course, I took... To this day, I won't hunt. I just put these on today. I don't even wear rings. <laughs> I'm, I'm still traumatized by how did you judge me? Because I, my style said that I might have had two... two, two uh, Rings that, on my finger, or sense. I might have had big earrings. How does that define me? It doesn't. But that is the kind of thing that, that I had to deal with. Subtly, I had another AD that I went up to a table. We were at a banquet to say something. He said, oh, I'll have an extra cup of coffee. Really? Really? Mm. You, know, you should oh, go get yourself one. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's right behind you. But those little yeah. subtle kinds of things sure. that, well, that, okay, so can I... Just rip up at you just because you say something like that? 
took it in and because that's the first thing they want to so she's gonna have an attitude yeah so i was having a conversation yesterday with a mutual friend of dre and i and he asked me he said so can you tell me what you think white privilege is because we were talking about the political climate and everything that's happening in washington dc right now Mm -hmm. oh but by the way before you mention that i want i do want to say we're recording this on january 10th 2021 four days before was when the, it, basically the mob yeah. took over the U.S. Capitol and one of you know, the five people five people were killed. Yeah, it, yeah, it, it was yeah. beyond anything I've ever seen it's in my insane. life. Yeah. So going back to this conversation that I was listening to between Lewis Howes and Emmanuel Ocho today, he had some really amazing things to say. I think you would love this podcast. But so he says. Privilege is immunity from certain punishment or access to things based upon something. And then he said, white privilege, he said, he said, I'm not saying your life hasn't been hard. It's saying your skin color hasn't contributed to that. Yes. Mm-hmm. You can be white and not be privileged, but because you're white, you have white privilege. Mm-hmm. And so I am going to go back to my friend and tell him exactly that. And I think that's a fantastic answer. And I've never heard anybody put it like that. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to add that to this conversation. And, and, and that's pertinent. so true. And if we would just even look at what happened four days ago, if that had been the Black Lives Matter, where they would have been. <laughs> oh, they wouldn't have made it to the door. They wouldn't have made it to they the door. They wouldn't have been anywhere close. Yeah. Not, not even a little bit. You saw what happened in June at the literally exactly the same spot. Link Lafayette yeah. Park, right? It was, no, it was at the Capitol building. There was pictures of. National Guards of Marines. Oh, of yeah, standing up steps. Like yeah, this, sure. The step of the Capitol. Sure. Before the protest of Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the, we're not going to call them protesters, to the rioters and the domestic terrorists that took part in what happened a couple of days ago that in some videos, unbelievably enough, were escorted in by the police. Mm-hmm. Taking, taking selfies with them. It, yeah. yeah. So... To me, that could be the visual definition of white privilege. And when you're going in there and you're sitting at the desk of the Speaker of the House and with your feet up on her desk with no protection of showing who you are because they didn't either they they were too stupid to think <laughs> that they were going to they were not going to get in trouble or they thought that the color of their skin and the fact that who is the leader, quote unquote, leader of the country was their friend, adversary. And I think that's lost on a lot of people even still. You saw 130 House members still voted against Mm -hmm. certifying the election after all this got at four o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. That's how long this went. So after they reconvened, it's amazing to me that people still don't see it. It, it, It's. It was something that, watching it on TV, it just brings tears to my eyes Mm -hmm. when I just Mm. see uh, a, a police officer jammed in a door that was, and yeah. breathe. Yeah. A police officer dies because mm-hmm. he gets beaten by a fire hydrant. I mean, it, it's the sad state of affairs the, that we... And what's great, and Dom, I'd be interested to see if you did this and D.C., if you did this, and Dre, I know you watch the news too. Mm-hmm. I try to not be one side or another mm-hmm. necessarily as far as what avenue I get my news. So I watch, I prefer ABC News or CBS, like world news, because mm-hmm. they're not so biased, I guess. But I watch CNN. I watch, I give the same equal amount to Fox News. Mm-hmm. And they, Fox News, I will say, handled that, at least the one that I watched. There's many different anchors on Fox News. But the one that I watched, they were condemning everything. Mm-hmm. Not only from, from the protest, from the mm-hmm. rioters and terrorists to the president. They were condemning everything except for Mike Pence. And I think, like, I was pleasantly surprised to see that. And it, I thought it was a time where you're going to bring more unity to the country with both media outlets literally talking about the same thing. And then you have the 130 senators and House of Representatives that voted mm-hmm. still to not certify the election. So it obviously didn't go beyond media. I, I have watched 
I watch CNN. And I've watched that so much that it's like an addiction. It's it's like a train wreck. It's like an addiction. And I'm probably one of the most liberal. I, I feel that I'm fair. I look at everybody for who they are, not their skin color or anything. I'm, I've helped just as many Caucasians as I have African Americans. Sure. I mean, it may mm-hmm. be more, but I don't care. Mm-hmm. I don't care what your gender preference is. I don't care. As a matter of fact, I will defriend you yep. if you start talking about somebody that may be their gender. Mm-hmm. I call them a little gender confusion, but that's <laughs> what they. But who? I'm not a, here to judge no. them. Mm-hmm. And. This thing in the last few days, I, I just every time I see it, I just it just hurts my heart to mm-hmm. think that it's that many evil, evil people mm-hmm. in this world, and they want to do things as a group because as a group they feel like they can get away with it and that they're stronger. Power in numbers, right? Yeah, sure. In numbers, sure. And that's why even if you take this back to sports a lot, when you see a lot of um, say, gang rapes and things like that among athletes. You normally see it around team sport kind of people. You yes. rarely ever see that with the individual sport. You won't see uh, a track athlete do that oh, or no. a swimmer or, or a tennis, tennis player. You don't see that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so rarely. they feel that the strength comes in numbers. Mm-hmm. And just to see how evil, these are evil people. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And you think just... I can't help but think that a lot of those folks and a lot of the folks that that think in a similar manner to the people that committed those horrific acts a few days back are the same people that looked at our athletes voicing their opinions, looked at people marching in the Black Lives Matter protests and said, you're being disrespectful to our country, you're being disrespectful to our flag. Mm You're being disrespectful to our military. Whatever it is, it, you know, it was a justification for dismissing those voices. It turns are the out same, he's a trailblazer. Uh, 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 turn around and say, yeah, yeah but we, it's okay. We can do it. It's okay if we overrun the nation's capital. It's okay if we lower an American flag and raise a, a, a campaign right. flag in its place. That's patriotic, but what you did is disrespectful. I don't want to like just harp on that, but I want to bring back to you, D, seeing what you're seeing from your eyes, like how do you see that as as far as how society views black voices, people of color's voices versus people who aren't, right? Like I said, I think things have gotten a lot better. Just like Gosh, I hope so. what mm. I say that I had to experience, so you wear too many rings, you wear big, your hair needs to be a certain way. People couldn't be who they were. And now I'm seeing all types of things on TV. And it makes me happy. Even in when I was modeling, when I first started modeling back in the late 70s, I was selected because of the color of my skin. Because prior to that, they would take a person that was very fair skin and put bronze makeup on. So when you look at a magazine, you would see them as bronze. Mm-hmm. But they when they picked me, not only for the color of my skin, but the fact that I had more Caucasian features. So that was their idea of introducing black beauty. Uh-huh. But uh-huh. now you see people that are very dark, very African features, very African hair. The people are being allowed to be who they are. Yeah. And that's the way yeah. it should be. Yeah, that's and, and I'm seeing a lot of that now. But we still have a bunch of people who judge you on those things. Mm-hmm. And you have, when I see what I saw this past week, I was in the 10th grade when Kennedy was assassinated. And when Kennedy was president, he was like the Obama to this generation. He yeah. was different. Yes, he, was. he didn't look like the men on the dollar bills. He was young. He had a young wife and they had children. And Attractive. they were like I, I, our ideal of a yeah. person. I saw that. I've been through 9-11, as most of us have. Now we're in a pandemic. I don't go out, okay, because 
I cannot, I, I do substitute, but I stay away. I'm very cautious. You have to respect science. You have to understand that if we all come together, even with something like this, we can conquer this thing. But I don't see any, I don't see any light at the end of this tunnel the no, way these people are. No. With the thing I think that stands out the most with me, with what happened this past week, was the still shot of the guy carrying the Confederate flag through the rotunda. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think that, obviously, you can't put all, let's call them brainwashed followers, in one category, but that guy's in a category all in itself, if you ask me. I think that was the most polarizing shot. I think that will be one of the contenders for the Time Magazine photo of the year just because of the mm -hmm. power that it held mm -hmm. and the statement that he was trying to make and i just i i have no idea like i don't i didn't grow up in jim crow i didn't grow up in all that stuff so well, that doesn't make me feel any kind that makes me feel sad for the country and sad for the people that it does have such a dramatic effect on and i wanted i had this question written down just to ask you what how did that make you feel in that moment that you saw that when I see that, it's just the most offensive thing yeah. that I can see. I can ride up 98. There are several houses oh, yeah. that have Confederate flag. Mm -hmm. It's offensive to me. Yeah, that's out of the country. It's, it's offensive. It's come on, people. Yeah. This is not the flag of our nation. Right. Mm -hmm. And we are not red state, blue states. We're the United States. Jeez, that was 18-whatever-it-was when exactly. the Civil War ended, and that flag I mean, was no longer offensive. the symbol for the uh, When I see that, I automatically have a thought about that person carrying that flag. Of course you do. And it, I don't care. That person could be African-American carrying it. I'm still yes. offense, offended yeah. when I see that flag. Well, it's because it's not about the person that carries It says a lot about the people that carry it, the flag, but it all it's just the symbol for something that was that Abraham Lincoln abolished and because it was the it was this it was the flag of the south right the flag that Jefferson of the, Davis of the confederacy right that Jefferson right. Yeah. Davis hoisted at his president's mansion when the south was a separate state it's just unbelievable to me that is still a symbol of let what some people say freedom and right. I don't understand and you don't see that flag exclusively in the south now it's all over the country and yeah. it's I I don't see it more is like a red state blue state like you were talking about it's not a red state blue state thing right it almost seems like it's a urban suburban versus i think rural that's almost i think that's fair the thing that's how those are the lines that our country seems to be split you on. look at the party lines and who voted for who and you see what 65 to 70 percent of suburbia in america mm -hmm. voted for trump where the higher populated urban areas well, along no, the west and east coast did not well the suburban areas around the major cities yes one direction shout they, out they, to atlanta for right, helping trump right, lose no. this election you look at that it, versus the, you look at the electoral map and there's oh, yeah. massive these massive swaths of red yep. where more states no people more states it, go well, red more more states go red more people go blue exactly yep. oh, good point yeah, it's the mass populated areas because as Don was saying, you have flyover states, the Kansas is, the Iowa's, the Nebraska's that but, aren't hugely populated. But, but even but even those states, the urban centers are Yes. You, you, but but that's because those are the areas where there's integration. Areas where people live together yep. and they've been doing it for generations. And, and the teachings get modified yeah. and mm -hmm. you know, corrected and improved over the years to where middle America you have the same people so, around the same people. So you're not introduced to, if you live in farm town, USA, you're around other farm town yeah. boys and girls. <laughs> and I, I, I think, I don't think I'm wrong saying this. I'm going to say 99% of farmers and are white. And well, it's just middle America. Even, you don't have, you have a lot of States, but not a lot of population. I would say even then most people, they're not, they may have biases, but they're not necessarily inherently racist. The, I think that the people that right. walked into the Capitol yes. this week, they're on a whole nother yes. uh, mindset. Mm -hmm. well, and so that's I, – I think that's got to be a very small proportion of 
the people and i think not only is it a small proportion of the people i think that they're those people are getting more and more radicalized yeah. by the type of media that's being consumed by the conspiracy right. theories that are out there. their leader is pushing out lies and propaganda from the white house so how do you not how do you not listen to that if you're if you believe in him in any inkling at all you're going to believe in everything that he says and so if all he says is stolen that's what you're going to believe sure uh, i've always said that if the top beam is crooked <laughs> the rest will not be straight yeah, right. yeah. the top beam is crooked and infested with termites crooked, and all the things straight. yeah if the foundation is broken too yeah, exactly you know that's the other thing there was going back to the confederate flag thing there was something that again going back to emmanuel ocho he said you need three things for racism privilege power and prejudice privilege power and president Prejudiced. Is there anything that you would add to that or wow. any way you would modify that? Because that seems pretty spot on. I think I don't think you can add anything. That yeah. covers it all to me. Yeah. Dom, what do you think? That that pretty much rounds it up. And right? we already uh, talked about privilege. The other thing is it, it, privilege is the underlying thing, but I think but the other thing that you need for it is the is arrogance. I'm better, than, good I'm better than somebody else. That could definitely I be am added. inherently worth more than somebody else. Mm-hmm. If you start with that basis, that's what you end up with. If you start with the basis that I am no better than anybody else, everybody has has the ability to achieve what I've achieved and given the opportunity, then I think and you remain humble as a person you can step back and avoid that. Oh, I don't think you can avoid it completely. Uh-huh. Obviously, everybody's got something because of the how you were raised or the perspective and the events that you've had in your life that are going to make you see things differently than other people. So I can't say, hey, I'm going to step back and say I'm a bias-free person because yeah. I'm not. Like, that would just be of course, ignorant we all have for our me biases. to say. Sure. Yeah. But... I don't think I'm better than anybody. You apply all and four of those words to yeah. the leader of the free world, and yeah. those all. Of I, you, I mean, the if picture you, comes it, in, it, well, but that's also not, apply it, clinical narcissism. But that's a whole well, other story. It, what's funny? What's funny though is that none of those four words that apply to Trump today, they still applied to him ten years ago, <laughs> and so and people could see that on the Apprentice. For goodness sakes, you guys, we have a reality show host as our president. Yeah. Only for 10 more days, but still. That has never even been a mayor or on city council or it's unbelievable. anything. It's unbelievable. I was looking at something about the previous experience of all the presidents. Mm-hmm. He has, he has none. 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 Like Z. He's, he's also a whiny baby that is not going to attend the inauguration. And you know what? I, if I was that's Joe fine. Biden, I would say I the same thing. That would be just fine. Right. That's, what, exactly. that's what Biden said. Biden said, you know what? That's exactly. the first thing we've ever agreed on. Exactly. And, <laughs> and I think that's fantastic because you have somebody that's taking it as – because my mom asked me the other day, and I'm not sure of this answer, so anybody in this room, please answer. Isn't – is she said, isn't the outgoing president the one that holds the Bible – that they swear in on. No, nah, that's the Chief Justice. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Chief so last time for Trump, it was John Roberts, right? It's, it's going to be Roberts. Roberts. It's, uh, yeah, Roberts. It's, yeah, what's his first name? I don't know. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Okay, yeah. that's, a, that's a good answer to that question. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm glad he's not going. I'm just glad he's not going. Yeah, it just let's hope and pray for that the they next... impeach him? No, let's, let's just hope and pray for the next 12 days or so. That there's no more incidents, that things just, there's a smooth and peaceful transition of power. Because Uh if for all the things that have happened in the history of the United States of America, for all of the great things that have happened, for all the tragedies that have occurred, the one thing that has held true since George Washington was our president was that there was a smooth transition of power from leader to leader, and we didn't have these issues where there was act, like active violence and fighting yeah. at the transition of power. Transition. Because yeah. that, I think, we talk about, people talk about the United States being this 
anomaly in history. I think that's why it's an anomaly yes. because it's the only nation where that transition of power has never included active violence amongst political forces. Yeah. And now we're getting laughed at. Yeah, the world watching. I, it's just amazing to me. It's just... Oh, yeah. It, I, it just takes your breath away when yeah, you I don't see know. the mm-hmm. stuff that's going on. I, I, I've I been out here for a minute. Yeah. I'm well, eight years... That's why I wanted to get your perspective on this because yeah. you've seen some things and you've been on... You, you've been... A lot of firsty in many things, and I just wanted to get your perspective on what's going on with this, a little bit of your perspective on how sports changed for the better over the course of your your career, and I really appreciate you being on the podcast and lending us your perspective and your expertise, and we hope to have you back soon. I appreciate the opportunity to be here, and I just want to say that we're talking about race relations and things like that, but... With all of the things that I've been able to accomplish in this world, with the exception of Dr. Walker, every single person that has pushed me through to where I am were white men. That's great. That's great to hear. They were white men. That's great to hear. I have one more question. Dom, did you have another question? Because I know we're coming up on an hour. So. Now, let's let's go ahead and wrap. Right, so I got <laughs> one more question. Steve Harvey has a quote. says, your career is what you're paid for. Your calling is what you're made for. Mm-hmm. What is your calling? And do you feel like you've already achieved it? My calling is to be able to help somebody else be all that they can be. I'm very passionate about young people, and I'm very passionate about older people. Mm -hmm. Our past and our future. Mm -hmm. Now, all of you guys in between, you're on your own. (laughs) (laughs) My calling has been I have the ability to communicate with young people to say things to them that's going to make a difference in their life and i'm constantly finding people that friend me on it on facebook to say i don't know if you remember me but you said this to me mm-hmm. at some point i don't remember but it's just that's my calling sure. and i'm not rich not even close but i am so rich in the people that i have been able to touch in their lives and that's what I feel is, is my calling, and I'm very passionate about that. It's a great answer. Excellent. And I, you, there's no doubt you have achieved all of that, yeah. for sure. Just reading the stories about you and talking to people about you, because we have we share a, a really good friend in Miss Jackie Wittenberg, mm-hmm. and yes. she talks so highly of you. <laughs> and it was a pleasure to have you in the studio for the last couple hours. So Dom already said it, and I want to echo, thank you so much for taking your time out of your day to come up here and just give us a few hours. We very much appreciate it. It's been enlightening. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed just being here and having these conversations, and I I look forward to working with you guys more. It's going to be great. Thank you, Dee. Thanks, Dee.